This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. What are we protecting when we guard the table or when we excommunicate someone who maybe once partook of it? What exactly are we protecting? Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my co-host and good friend, James Dolezal. James, good to see you here today. Good to be here again, Jonathan. And today we're going to do something that we've done a number of times in the past, which is just talk between the two of us, and you have volunteered to lead. So I'm placing myself completely in your hands at great risk and handing it over to you. I'm going to lead, but I'm hoping that you'll supply the content. Uh, I thought what we could talk about today was the subject of church discipline. And uh, I bring this up because while many in the Reformed world are aware of this, and even in the Westminster Confession, we have a whole chapter on censures uh, and what those involve, um, it does seem that generally church discipline is not something that is very frequent uh, in the modern church or taken very seriously, even if it's even if it's present. Part of it may be just our sort of consumer approach to churches. If If things go bad at your church or if the leadership in your church disapproves or even places you under discipline, it's not difficult to go and find a new church home very similar to your old one right down the street. And ordinarily, uh, while we'd like churches to coordinate and be serious about this, uh, it doesn't happen. So I thought maybe we could scale it back a little bit from that and say, uh, first, what is church discipline? Maybe we could begin this way. Where is it taught in Scripture, and what do we mean by church discipline? Well, I want to get to the last point you made during this conversation at some stage, because I think you're right. There's a major problem with churches cooperating on this. Uh, To answer the specific question, though, there is a sense in which uh, church discipline could be looked at very broadly, that in a sense one of the roles of elders in a church is to handle things in a way that is orderly and that is according to Scripture. So you could even, if you wanted to speak of it very, very broadly, you could even speak of church discipline uh, beginning at uh, membership, beginning, right. beginning with hearing whether someone makes a credible profession of and public profession of faith. So everything that feeds into good order in the church could broadly come under discipline. Yeah, it could, and I think that would be biblical and and consistent. Of course, what we generally mean by church discipline has to do with uh, disciplining someone who has, in a public way, in an unrepentant way, sinned such that they need to be kept ultimately from the Lord's table. Uh, There are warnings that we would want to have in place, there are restrictions that we would want to have in place, but that's the kind of ultimate, most public kind of church discipline, and that's what we typically think of when we talk about church discipline, something that might lead to someone's excommunication from the church, or uh, their being barred from the Lord's table. Since we're on that point, I thought to touch that later, but let's touch it now since you since you raised it. When people hear the word excommunication, it might it might bring up uh, thoughts of scourges mm-hmm. and hair shirts mm-hmm. and exile. Right. Um, and it and so it kind of rubs uh, our modern sensibilities the wrong way. It sounds um, it sounds really hateful and, yeah. and borderline violent. Um, 
but quite literally, you brought up the issue of what we call communion, the supper of the Lord, and excommunication has some direct connection to that. How is that sacrament in particular the, the place where, where discipline, at least in, far, in terms of its penalty phase, if I can put it like that, is, is in fact manifested? Yeah, excommunication in some churches, sadly, has been looked at as a kind of shunning, where you're you're no longer having any kind of relationship with someone in this situation, and and that's not what I'm talking about. But you're right. Unfortunately, that's what people hear when they hear it that we're practicing some kind of you know, uh, Anabaptist shunning procedure. Um, but that's not what it is. So so it is related to the Lord's table. In the Scriptures, and, and we have to start with our doctrine of the Lord's Supper, in the Scriptures, there are a number of things that are said about uh, the table of the Lord. It's it's said to be a remembrance, a, a, a memorial. It's it's said to be a proclamation. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But it's also said to be a place where we have fellowship or communion, and I'm thinking specifically of 1 Corinthians 10, fellowship or communion with one another and with Jesus Christ himself by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just a memorial or just a proclamation. It is actually a place in which Christ promises to be with his people by his Spirit. And so the reason why that becomes important in the in the <coughs> church discipline discussion is uh, Paul also tells us that we need to make sure that the manner in which we're approaching the Lord's table is right and that we are cognizant of the body of the Lord. Uh, and, and I believe in 1 Corinthians 11, part of what he's talking about there is cognizant of who gives credible evidence of being part of the church. Right. So, that, so we have to do this. We have to kind of shield people, fence people. Right. There is a um, criteria yes. by, by which we publicly recognize someone to be part of the body of Christ. And you mentioned 1 Corinthians 10, 16, where the drinking of the cup and eating of the bread is a sharing in, yes. and that's where we get our whole notion of communing, a sharing in the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, and then showing that we are mutually members together of that body. Lacking evidence... Um, credible evidence, not infallible evidence, because no. we don't we're not privileged to that. Lacking evidence of that, which in this case would be something like persistent, unrepentant sin, mm-hmm. um, would be failure to give credible evidence of belonging to the body of Christ. And on that basis, then the church has an obligation to what exactly? What are, what are we protecting um, when we guard the table or when we? excommunicate someone who maybe once partook of it, but now they're no longer allowed. What are we, what exactly are we protecting? What advantage is there in that? Right, so just to underscore what you said, of course this is not something that we can determine infallibly. Right. But what we're protecting, I think there are a number of things being protected. First of all, we're protecting the purity and the reputation of Christ's church, uh, we say we stand for certain things, we say we are committed to certain things, and we need to back that up with, with action. We need to back that up with drawing appropriate lines. We, we, can't, we can't show prejudice or, or, or favoritism if, in fact, we really believe these things. So, so there's the purity of the church that's at stake. I would also say we're protecting 
in a certain sense, the individual himself or herself, because Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 11 that some of the problems that people had experienced, some of the actual even physical problems that Mm. they experienced in Corinth were due to the judgment of God on them because of their approach to the Lord's table. Right, so there there is a real sense which if we eat and drink unworthily, not as perfect sinless persons, but unworthily, uh, that we eat and drink condemnation to ourselves. That's right. So the elders and, and ministers who are leading this process have a responsibility, and then in order to care for this person, they need to draw these lines really clearly. And and so there are a number of things at stake. It is the purity of the Church, but it's not simply the purity of the Church. I would also say this, that Church discipline can and should foster repentance right. in, in the individual who is disciplined. Now, I want to... So it's not good riddance. It's, it's never good riddance. Uh, it's never good riddance, and we see examples in the Scriptures. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about someone who has repented, uh, e- even though he received great criticism uh, from Paul and, and perhaps some kind of discipline from the Church. And so, no, we want there to be repentance, but I, I want to say this because oftentimes I've heard Church discipline presented, in fact, n- a number of times I've heard it presented as simply a means to bring about repentance, and I don't think in the Scriptures that's the highest goal of discipline, but it is a goal of discipline. Okay, I'm, gl- I'm glad you said that, because I've also heard it portrayed, not falsely, but perhaps in an unbalanced way, as God's recovery plan. Uh, right. But then there's nothing There's nothing more to it. In other words, it's just it, it, it's almost a kind of therapeutic approach to the individual, um, and not that it can't be that, therapy being working upon someone for their ultimate good, but it, while it can have that effect, you're saying that that's not um, its chief benefit or objective. Yeah, and I think it's important because I, I've heard I've heard people go so far as to say the only purpose of church discipline is to bring about the repentance of a sinner. And I think the danger there, in addition to uh, ignoring uh, other things that Scripture says, the danger there is if that's your main goal and if that's what you think your only goal ought to be, you're going to try to, in a sense, manipulate the situation in such a way that you hope you will bring about their conviction of sin, and, and, and you won't burn any bridges and things like that. In, in other words, you'll, you'll try to manage it right. to elicit a response. I, I kind of look at that as, as what you see um, people doing sometimes with their kids, you know, in, in a store or in the mall, they say, all right, we're leaving, and they start to walk away, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, no. the intent is to terrify the child. But you're not really you're leaving. you're not really leaving, and, and, you know, 99 times out of 100, after the parent gets 20 feet away, the kid yeah. sort of is terrified enough that he runs back. And, and that's not, I mean, we want to see, we pray for repentance, and in fact, um, in the congregation where I serve, this is part of what you even say to the congregation when there's a kind of discipline. We, we we're praying for repentance here. 
So I don't want to sideline that, but I also want to say that we have to put that in its proper place. There are other things at stake. The glory of Christ's bride. That's um, it. I, I have one, one question, and then I want to ask a procedural one after this. So we've talked about two things. It's for the purity of the church and also for the protection of the unrepentant sinner uh, so that they don't eat and drink uh, condemnation to themselves. We can add a third one. Maybe it is um, also to see them, uh, you know, as it were, delivered over to yes. Satan that their soul, soul may in the end be saved right. and they're brought back into that. But there is a goal of excommunication for recommunication. Yes. All those things, um, back to the purity one, if it is for purity and the church this side of glory is full of sinners, ourselves included, then why isn't everybody excommunicated? I mean, what what, exa- what is the difference between, not to get into cases here, but right. a little, people will wonder this, What? how come, how come Joe Sinner A doesn't get excommunicated and Joe Sinner B, who sits in the pew behind him, did get excommunicated. Where, what? If you could sort of broadly say, what, what is the difference? Yeah, I think there's no clear uh, list here of case law, but I think what you're looking at is, is it public and is it unrepentant? Right. Um, and the reason I bring up both of those is the the one of the clearest cases, probably the clearest case we have in the New Testament of this playing out is in First Corinthians five. The man who has his, yes, his the man stepmother, who has his, probably. That's right. That's right. And yeah. it meets both of those qualifications. This is something about which not only the man himself, but actually in that case, the church is is arrogant about, is sort of boasting about. So there's a there's an unrepentant nature to it, but it's also very public. And Paul says this is something that wouldn't even be tolerated among the Gentiles. And literally a scandal, a stumble yeah. a stumbling block. Yeah. yeah. And I mean I think that can that can create questions in people's minds because we all know that there are many secret private sins that are going on all the time that are incredibly egregious and and grievous uh but there is something different about a public sin because, again, the, the purity of Christ's bride and, and, and the reputation of Christ's right. bride is, in, in some sense, at stake here. And there are ways in which what are thought in our minds to be private sins can become public sins because, because of the way that they touch upon our relations to other people. So a, a, a man having an affair a, you know, and hiding it from his wife, it becomes a public sin in so much as it's the thing that's disrupting that marriage, which is a public institution, right. as it were. Yeah, there, there are also just... Um, sort of logistical issues here that that make the public part of it important. Um, uh, Just recently, I was with a group of ministers, and we heard from a woman who had uh, suffered a great deal of abuse in her marriage, And, and one of the problems was that no one knew about it, or 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 not enough people knew, um, right. or the right people didn't know, or however you'd want, you'd want to say it. You know, that's just a reality that sometimes these things don't result in discipline until they until they come out. Right, and it's not the job of the church to be um, to be sidelined by trying to go find. Uh, the offenses where no, no evidence for them lies. Uh, there's a sense at which we have to wait until there's enough to observe and see, and and that that person's a church member. So can, right. we, can we transition for a yeah. moment? Because we have a couple minutes left. I want to finish with sort of a procedural question on what does this look like uh, mm-hmm. beginning to end mm-hmm. uh, in a generic sense, but also with regard to who is a potential subject of discipline 
And what exactly are the means of implementing it? We've already mentioned it with the Lord's Supper. I'm really asking, what are the limits with regard to who the church can discipline and what kind of discipline or what it looks like when they impose it? So first, with regard to who. Who is a potential candidate for discipline? I would say, and this language might be different depending on the church that our listeners are a part of, but... um, I would say we're talking here about communicant members of the church. In other words, these are people who have made a public, yeah, publicly professed their faith, in a right. sense publicly covenanted themselves to that congregation, right. to those elders who are leading the congregation, and, and have voluntarily and publicly put themselves under the care of that congregation. So in a sense, by professing and joining the church as a communing member, we are already under the discipline yes. of the church. Uh, some of us are under it in that sort of positive way. Mm-hmm. Others might be put under it sanction in the event of an unrepentant uh, public sin. But everybody who is a professing member of the Church is already under the discipline. It's just a question of whether that's in its positive mode or in its excommuning mode. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the fact that there is such a thing as membership and communicant membership that sort of falls in one sense under the idea of, of discipline. We could al- I, I almost want to get sidelined into church membership, but I'm not going to at this moment. Maybe we devote a whole future episode to the yeah. biblical ground and necessity yeah, yeah, of it. it sounds like a so point. second point, uh, with regard to the extent then, what does the discipline look like? We've talked about the Lord's Supper. We could revisit that, but maybe you could say more negatively, what is the church not authorized to do in terms of implementation of discipline? Well, that's probably a long. That's, that's a, a long, long list. list. Um, but so maybe I can, if if you don't warnings. Want, if you yeah. were to warn a church and say, th- these are areas where you might be tempted to overstep the boundaries right. of your authority in right. disciplining. What what would right. be some of those? Yeah, it's not shunning. It's not trying to inform everyone in the person's life necessarily. You're not out to trash them, make or, them lose their job, get right, kicked out of the exactly, HOA. Exactly. Uh. It's, it's exactly. It's not. So so it's it's not the kind of thing that you see now on social media, where right. someone okay, will good. get crushed for something that they retweeted, and and suddenly no one should have anything to do with the them. The complete dissolution of their life and welfare, down to their ability to even earn no, a living. it's not a scorched earth kind of thing at all, but... I think it can include—now, Now, I want to be careful. It doesn't always include this, but it can include some kind of public statement. In fact, with elders, Paul says that right. in the case of an elder who's caught in a sin, you must rebuke him publicly. And the reason for that is, Paul says, so that people will fear. So elders who are caught in that kind of sin need to be rebuked publicly. Now, I think that also tells us something important, which is— not every person needs to be rebuked publicly in front of the church. There, There is a time and a place for quieter kinds of conversations with the elders. But of course, when it, if it should ever come to the level of excommunication, then that would be made known Someone to the church. Someone would have to, yeah, it would uh, have to be made public. Not with salacious details, no. but with clear judgment. No, and, and, and remember too, I mean, unless there's some unusual case where there's a real danger, a sort of physical danger of some kind, even in that case, you're not saying you can never come back to uh, be with us on a Sunday morning. Now, you are saying 
don't take the Lord's Supper, but right. we invite unbelievers into the church all the time. And we and just as we warn them, uh, if they've That's not right. made profession or joined a church, don't approach the table. That's right. Um, let it let the elements pass you by. Right. Uh, right. We would say the same thing to anyone under discipline, and then then there would be a responsibility of the church officers to ensure that that didn't happen. Right. I'm um, not avoiding eye contact when I see the person at the grocery store. Right. Okay. Because I wouldn't do that with my unbelieving neighbor. But as an elder, you also wouldn't put uh, the plate with the bread in front of them. That's right. As well. Good. So let's um, maybe wrap up and just say this. In terms of the procedure, we're talking about discipline with regard to the sanction aspect of Mm -hmm. where does it begin? Um, And not that it necessarily has to go through to the end, but where, how does it begin and how does it proceed? At, at the end of the day, I think the elders of the church are involved really from beginning to end. And, and again, the end might not be public excommunication, but, but even if it were, I would say the elders are going to be intimately involved in that. So I think it starts with attempting to dissuade someone from their continuance in that sin, even in a, in a private way. What you want to do, um, and unless, again, unless there's just this public grievous sin that just comes out, in which sure. case you kind of move to a yeah, later stage. you're a stage. couple steps in yeah, right, at, right yeah. at the start. But if it's something that you know about that's ongoing, what you're trying to do is counsel and shepherd this individual so that they might repent, so that this wouldn't go any further. And right. perhaps you might say to someone, until this is resolved, don't participate in the Lord's table, but but we're going to give some time for the person to repent without just bringing it in front of everybody immediately. So th- it's often a very lengthy process. If it's a judicial issue where the person himself or herself is actually opposing, you know, is disagreeing with it, then then I think it's important for churches uh, to, to have judicial procedures in place. Our, our, our church does, your church does, in such a way that it protects everyone and is done in, in an orderly way uh, so that they can, they can appeal and, and all that kind of thing. The, the very language of a judicial procedure in the church will probably sound foreign to modern Christians, but Paul says, if you're going to judge angels one day, right. are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts to adjudicate problems among yourselves? Right, and, and, and I think it's appropriate to use the phrase courts of the church, right. because that is part of what we're commanded because, to do. And it is explicitly judicial language that Paul's using it is. Uh, in this Corinthians epistle. It is. It is. Good. So from there, if it moves all the way up to the point of unrepentant persistence, uh, final, finally it wraps up uh, one of two ways. The person repents and the process is ended at that point, and we celebrate that they are... <laughs> right. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a wonderful um, thing. Or... Or, well, what often happens today, and you alluded to this right at the beginning, is that people just leave and then oftentimes go somewhere else. Sometimes not. Sometimes they'll they'll just, uh, you know, live outside of any kind of uh, public association with Christians, uh, which is a sad thing. But sometimes they'll go elsewhere. And, and here's where it gets very, very frustrating as an elder in a church. You go through this whole process, painful, no one enjoys it. It's a terrible process. You get to the end, and you, you, you realize we have to do this in order to obey Christ. And then and then another church, like you said, down the street, maybe yeah. a church that you have a relationship with. Not just a heretical said, church. Not a yeah, church, right, not right, right, right. We'll just say, yeah. well, you know, it's, he told us, and it sounds like he's a pretty good guy, and there are a lot of things maybe you didn't realize. And, and, and after and all— And they retry the case— 
completely independent of all parties except for the except for the excommunicant or, or, involved. Or they don't. They just say, okay. you know, we looked him in the eye and and we really think he's sincere. He's got a good feeling about yeah. this guy. And so and so that's it. And that's right. that's very discouraging because y- you leave that saying we did the right thing and I'm not sure you know <laughs> what what it what it ultimately accomplished, which which just doesn't mean you don't do it. It just means, boy, if you're in a congregation and you know that someone has uh, been under discipline somewhere else, please contact those elders. Please give them the benefit of the doubt, even if you say, "Well, boy, I would have done this or that differently." Give them the benefit of the doubt as brothers in the Lord, and you know, l- at least listen very carefully to what that church has done. Know that it was likely not done with any malice or with any kind of flippancy. Good counsel. Thanks thanks for uh, letting me interrogate you uh, on, on this difficult matter of the discipline of the Church for its purity, for the protection of those who are unrepentant, and, and also hopefully for their repentance and return. Not a fun subject to discuss, but, uh, but thanks. Thank you. As always, we thank you for listening to this episode of Theology on the Go. If there's anyone that you know who might benefit from this podcast, please uh, pass the word uh, along. We, we love to have new listeners. We love to hear from listeners as well, so feel free to email us. And if you're able to donate, you can do that at AllianceNet.org or at PlaceForTruth.org. Both of those websites have a donate button. For listening to this episode, we'd like to offer you the chance to win a resource that we found helpful. Uh, like all these resources, we don't uh, agree with everything in it, but it, but we agree with an awful lot of it. It's an excellent book that we have no problem commending to you. And in this case, the book that we'd like to give you the chance to win is called Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus by Jonathan Lehman. It's one of uh, a series of excellent, helpful resources on church topics published by Nine Marks. And so, Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus by Jonathan Lehman. If you'd like to enter for a chance to win that, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there will be something there that you can click on to enter your name and information. As always, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.